0: Hello, and welcome to the Not-A-Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back, we'll resume the weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with Sansa 3 in A Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm recording some episodes on my own and some with guest hosts on a variety of topics, including picking up where I left off last time Jeff was gone with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, we covered Book 4, Chapter 3 of The Lord of the Rings, The Black Gate is Closed, and this week, we're covering Book 4, Chapter 4 of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. The first three chapters of Book 4 were a descent into hell like an inverted Pilgrim's Progress, or a version of Dante's Inferno with Gollum playing the part of Virgil. Frodo and his companions made it out of the labyrinth of the Muil and crossed the wasteland of the Dead Marshes, only to be stopped dead by the Black Gate. Now what? Where are they going? And what does that mean for the story? Book four is divided up into three parts. The third and final part is another descent into hell like the first, climbing past the nightmare city of Minas Morgul into the dark terror of Shelob's lair. But in between, the second part of the book, the tone is different. Less terrifying, more melancholy. There's still a threat, but it has less to do with flying ringwraiths and giant spiders than how the ordinary mortals deal with one another as the shadow grows all around them. The chapters at the beginning and end of book four are so effective in part because of the sense of isolation. Frodo, Sam, and Gollum are so cut off from the rest of the world that the settings start to seem abstract, almost dreamlike. Here in the middle of the book, Tolkien reintroduces the rest of the world, putting Frodo's quest into context. It's the connective tissue between his story and the war we saw unfolding in Book 3, in Rohan, and now in Gondor. We're passing out of the wasteland that has long belonged to Sauron, or to Death itself, and into disputed territory, where the forces of Mordor and Gondor fight where there is still some life, but it's always at risk. At the start of the chapter, Gollum wants water down by the Great River, the border and defining feature of this part of Middle-earth, the same river that Gollum used to track the Fellowship from Lothlorien, but will he be welcome here? Darkness shields them from sight. The light is dangerous here, a major theme in Book 4. There's the creepiness of the red eye watching from the teeth back at the Black Gate, but then it dwindles and vanishes. Their hearts are lightened, and the dawn reveals a world less ruinous than the hellscape outside the Black Gate. It's a transitional space, it's used to both masters. Trees exist again, but they're somber, Tolkien writes, like the dark clouds hanging over Mordor. There's tumbled heath, there's plants the hobbits don't know. It's wonderful to come across green growing things that they don't know, there is still so much life in Middle-earth we haven't even seen all of it. The air is fresh and fragrant, a notable contrast with the foul stink of the dead marshes. The Hobbits pay this land the ultimate compliment. It reminds them of the Shire. It's not yet wholly fallen into decay, as Tolkien writes. It feels like occupied territory, rather than remade territory. Evil is hidden, but it's still present. This is the world of men, men like Boromir. Keep him in mind. As always, Tolkien links time to environment, giving us these grand glimpses of how things used to be, and then contrasting it with the ruined present. The hobbits can tell that this road was built by the Numenorians, men of old, working in a long lost time. Part of it is newly repaired, part of it is abandoned. The ambitions are still there, cutting through nature, but the works themselves have faded. It feels like an echo of the poem Ozymandias when the pride of kings is revealed as folly in the face of the decay of time, just like Moria for the dwarves. But the humble cart road leading them along remains straight and true, like the hobbits themselves. This land is Ithilien. It's not quite the equivalent of Moria for men. It's maybe more like their Rivendell or Lothlorien, made an imitation of the home to the west and now falling to the shadow. The swift streams, the fragrant woods, everything Gollum can't stand, just like everything Elvish. There are gentle slopes covered in fir and cedar and cypress. Your shoulders relax just reading it, all the dreadful tension of the Black Gate falling away. The hobbits have come far south in their journey, but only now do they stumble into a dream of spring. And Tolkien lingers on the description of all the the plants and vegetation in Ithilien. He talks about the tamarisk and terebinth, olive and bay, junipers and myrtles, thymes that grew in the bushes or with their woody creeping stems mantled in deep tapestries, sages of many kinds, lily flowers nodding their half-open heads in the grass, deep green grass. This is the Garden of Gondor. Now desolate by comparison to its older glories, like Gondor in general, but it still has a disheveled dryad loveliness, as Tolkien writes. Just a a perfect phrase. It's open to winds from the sea, the keening nostalgia for Numenor that was, as we'll see with Faramir's men. Tolkien describes the plant life as a riot of careless descendants, which is again a beautiful phrase, but it also speaks to Gondor's sloth, how they've let go of discipline. It makes me think of Treebeard, whose job is to keep the forest disciplined. The hobbits see a lake surrounded by irises and water lilies. It's, it's so idyllic, it makes me think of Monet paintings. But just as the beauty of the water outside Moria was tainted, the hobbits can't rest easy here. This is still enemy territory now. There are scars, there are wounds on the trees, there are dead trees with Mordor symbols carved into them. Sam stumbles upon what he calls a dreadful feast and slaughter, the remains of a massacre. Yet the irony is that in this chapter, the hobbits expose themselves not to their enemies, but to their allies, or their potential allies anyway. Sam is still anxious, but less about Gollum now than food. Good food. A hot meal. Something to stick to the ribs. A taste of home. It only seems possible now in this improved environment. With the dread of the Black Gate behind them, survival seems possible. And survival means taking responsibility. As Sam thinks we might be wanting to get back, we might. He forges a practical alliance with Gollum. We can come together over food, if I asks nicely. Meat's back on the menu, boys. Sam looks at Frodo as he sleeps, comparing him to his fall at Rivendell, the wound of the enemy he'd taken at Weathertop taking hold of him. But Frodo doesn't look evil, only full of light, maybe dangerously full of light, as Gandalf said at Rivendell, a vessel for good, which is eating him up inside. Old and beautiful, is how Sam describes Frodo, fitting the elvish atmosphere of this place. Not that Sam puts it that way, Tolkien writes, as if to say it was only Tolkien himself, the author, intervening to describe Frodo. Sam barely senses it, thinking of his feelings purely as loving someone who is a certain way, not dissimilar to Gandalf or to Gollum. More importantly, though, Frodo just looks too skinny. There's a brief tone shift here to the early chapters of the book or even The Hobbit, as Tolkien takes delight in telling us all about Hobbit cooking skills. It's a shard of sweetness. Something you do in a strange place to remind you of home. For Sam, his cooking gear is the precious. And Gollum's objection to Sam cooking is hilarious. He's so crestfallen, like he thought he was helping, and now Sam is just ruining things by cooking the rabbits he found. Gollum is a predator in nature. He eats his food raw, with no memory of ever doing anything else. He doesn't like smelly leaves and taters, what's taters, eh? What a nice change of pace to be fighting over something so small, instead of the fate of the world. But it's sad to consider how much Gollum is alienated from light and warmth in all its forms. Sam says that if Gollum really has turned over a new leaf, Sam will reward him for it with fish and chips, the classic English meal. Gollum, though, would be more at home at a raw bar, maybe slipping down some oysters with a little vinegar and lemon. Different strokes. His olive branch rejected, Sam gathers what ingredients he can himself. I love the delight he takes in surprising Frodo with the meal. It reminds me of the little moments I've stopped off to get something for my wife on the way home, something I know she'll like and be surprised by, and the joy in my heart as I bring it to her. Sam, being Sam, can't help apologizing to Frodo for everything that's missing. There's no stock, no onions, no taters, not even a bowl to sip it from. Rationally, of course, this doesn't matter. Frodo wasn't expecting anything. He's not going to complain now that it's not restaurant-quality service. But Sam is trying to do more than supply Frodo with calories. He's trying to remind them of home, where they would have onions and taters and bowls. That's why when Frodo asks what time it is, Sam tells him what time it would be by shire clocks. As always, the Lord of the Rings is all about time, on an individual level, as well as the grand movements of ages that span millennia. Shire reckoning isn't meaningful outside the shire, except as a memory, one that Sam is trying to keep alive, like winding a watch during a zombie apocalypse. It's the same spirit as his song about the Oliphons last week. Stewed rabbit might seem out of place here and now, but that's exactly what transforms the humble meal into a feast, as Tolkien describes it. The hobbits haven't had anything like it for a long time. They might not ever have anything like it again. It's a way of reasserting themselves, like the plants that still stubbornly survive here. This is who we are. And if Sauron doesn't like it, well then Sauron can go jump up his own ethereal ass. But Tolkien doesn't make it easy on our heroes. Gollum was right that the fire could get them caught. Sam doesn't realize how visible the smoke is until it's too late. This is a war zone. Sadly, it's no place for a picnic, no matter how satisfying their bodies and souls found it. The shadow will not permit such innocence to last. Yet, it's not the Dark Lord's servants who have found them, but his enemies. The first clue is the whistle Sam hears as he rushes back to camp to put out the fire. It sounds like bird song. Sam, like most hobbits, is close enough to nature to know the difference. But mimicking birds doesn't seem like something orcs would do, does it? Seems more like the elves. It's not elves, of course. It's men, rangers from Gondor. But they look kind of like elves. These men are tall and dressed all in green to camouflage themselves, like the elves of Lothlorien. Ironically, they wonder if the hobbits might not be elves. Why not? They've never seen elves in the flesh, any more than Sam had before setting out on this quest. The mortals are all alone in this chapter, with only the idea, the image, the memory of the immortals, just as Athelion is clearly a shadow of its former self. Elves are wondrous and fair to look upon, one of the men says. Sam picks up on the insult. Oh, so we're not, huh? We're just ordinary, humble travelers. We're innocents in this war. That's our strength as well as our weakness. But men have fallen from their glory days like the elves before them. Living under the shadow, you lose your belief in innocence, in neutrality. There are no travelers here, their leader says, only soldiers, and you either serve the White Tower or the Black One. No gray areas like Gandalf's old cloak, and no in-between characters like Gollum. This captain is Faramir, and he's introduced forcing the hobbits into the agony of choice, which defines his character as well. Who will he be? What will war do to him? These are the same questions Tolkien asked of Boromir, and Frodo notices the family resemblance before it's ever made explicit. Boromir thought he was serving the White Tower, but wound up serving the Black Tower instead. So do friends become enemies. As Haldir said in Lothlorien, that only benefits the Dark Lord. I've been talking about that in terms of Gollum's relationship with the Hobbits, and Gollum immediately becomes a sticking point for Faramir. The men saw him too, but he ran off. Gollum is a cautionary tale for Faramir, as well as Frodo a sign of what men have been and could become again. Frodo says, truthfully, that he doesn't know where Gollum went, but that he, Frodo, is responsible for Gollum. Frodo has taken, quote, the wretched gangrel creature under his care. Frodo might be trying to make Gollum seem less threatening in Faramir's eyes, but it also seems to genuinely be how he thinks about it. Even though Gollum was the one guiding them to Mordor, Frodo believes that Gollum needed him more than the other way around and asks that Faramir, if he finds Gollum, show him mercy. For better or worse, Frodo has come a long way since the Shire. He's gained empathy, even while losing his companions. Speaking of which, Frodo honestly reports who he was traveling with, giving Boromir's name while holding some of the others back. These men knew Boromir. He was their captain. These were the men he was so desperate to save when he turned violently on Frodo, trying to take the ring as though he'd become Gollum. And just as Frodo wouldn't dare show the ring to Gollum, giving what seeing it again did to Bilbo, Frodo holds back on what Isildur's bane actually is, even while telling Faramir the truth about everything else. It's similar to how Faramir can't even name Sauron, only gesturing at the shadow in the east. Names are powerful. It's the same reason Gollum only refers to the Dark Lord as he. Faramir then reveals the hobbits were in danger from that shadow. As his men confirm, there's another army of men marching north to join Sauron. The hobbits might have stumbled right into them. Their oasis of herbs and stewed rabbit now seems more fragile than ever. Just as the Shire is kept innocent by virtue of Aragorn's rangers fighting and dying to protect it, so these rangers have saved the hobbits. But Aragorn still seemed like an enemy at first, back in Bree, one of the big folk who so often betray the small folk. And the men Faramir leaves behind are there to control the hobbits as much as guard them. For your good and for mine, is how Faramir puts it, because he can't trust strangers. Frodo tries to bridge the gap by saying, they're not strangers. All enemies of Sauron are friends, and he wishes them well in the wars to come. You're courteous, Faramir replies, whatever else you may be. It's that same courtesy that won over Gildor's elves when Frodo encountered them in the Shire. Gentle words may yet soothe harsh ones. Speaking of the elves, Frodo and Sam overhear their guards speaking Elvish, though a different version than they've heard before. As always, Tolkien roots the social dynamics of his world in language, and roots language in time. These are the Dúnedain, Frodo thinks, the men of Westerness. They are like Aragorn as well as Boromir. And just as Aragorn must wander the ruins of his ancestors' northern kingdom, so these men are native to Ithilien. This is their home, where it was before it was overrun. Now it's a battlefield, one that rages within as well as without. These men aren't even here to fight orcs, but other men. This isn't a chapter about the Great Eye and its fantastical servants. It's about the mortals. If we can't share this world with each other, then Sauron will have won, even if the ring is destroyed and him with it. Much as the rangers curse the Southron men and say they were never friendly, they also acknowledge that there was peace and even trade between them back when Gondor was strong, when this land was theirs. But now Gondor shrinks and withers, isolated from other men to the south as much as they are from elves and dwarves to the north. They're no longer useful trading partners, and they can no longer intimidate other men into compliance. So now the Southrons march to join Sauron along the roads Gondor built, because they believe Gondor can no longer hold them. These rangers are here to demonstrate otherwise, but they acknowledge it's a losing battle. The walls of Minas Tirith are doomed to fall, they say. Again, it's the same bitterness and grief that drove Boromir over the edge. These men feel doomed, as Frodo and Sam did at the Black Gate. But then again, Valar Morgullus. All men must die, and we commit our greatest follies when we think otherwise. These rangers say with sorrow that the days of Gondor are numbered. But that would be the case even without Sauron, because all our days are numbered. That's what it means to be mortal. There is no power greater than time. Even the immortal elves bow before it. When Galadriel talks about all her efforts amounting to a long defeat, she's expressing the same feeling as these rangers. And while these rangers might feel like they're being replaced by the Southrons, the elves feel like they're being replaced by all men, including those of Gondor. After all, it was a man of Gondor who refused to destroy the ring. It was the proud kings of men who became the ringwraiths. We can't save each other from death. All we can do is comfort one another, and in doing so, find enough in common to keep living without believing we can conquer death. We see that play out in the subsequent battle. I love that Sam compares the sounds of war to a bunch of blacksmiths at work. That's the only reference point he has. Sam grew up among plowshares instead of swords. He hasn't had to fight for his home like these men. Battle is something new to him, and he's eager to see it until he does. A dead man comes crashing down on them. He's wearing red. He's a Southron, ally of Sauron, and those are the green arrows of the rangers in his throat. But Tolkien denies us any catharsis of victory. He emphasizes that the man's robes are tattered, his corset torn apart, his sword broken like Isildur's. Tolkien as a whole doesn't devote much time to exploring the servants of Sauron in terms of their motivations. They're mostly just enemies to be cleared off the field. This is the major exception to that rule. All of Sam's excitement dries up in an instant, because this man is no longer a threat, no longer an enemy, he's a corpse like any other. All stories end the same way. The road ultimately has only one destination. Sam can't help but empathize, cutting through the hatreds of warring tribes to realize that this was just a person, far from home, like him. Maybe lies and threats put him on the road that led him here. Maybe he too wanted to go home. Maybe he died thinking of his equivalent of herbs and stewed rabbit. It's similar to the empathy Frodo has developed for Gollum, and for Tolkien, it's rooted in his Christian beliefs. We're all sinners, and there but for the grace of God go I. It's so powerful because all the stories we tell ourselves about each other fall away, leaving only the reality that JFK talked about. We all breathe the same air, we all cherish our children's futures, and we are all mortal. That's the reality. And then, story returns with a vengeance. A new noise arrives, Tolkien writes, bellowing, trumpeting, stampeding that shakes the earth. Mumak! One of the guards cries to the other, Mumak! We don't know what that means, and neither does Sam. He has a different word for it, oliphant, and the English-speaking reader has another word for it, elephant. Readers in other languages will have their own words. But languages are linked by what they're trying to express. They're all attempts to capture experience, the raw visceral experience that Sam goes through now. Astonishment, terror, and delight. He feels them all, wonders without words, as the Oliphant he sang about at the Black Gate comes crashing out of his fantasies into his reality. Tolkien describes it as a moving hill, as miraculous as the sight of the moving trees are to the characters in Rohan. It has ears like sails, snout like a serpent, the trappings men put on him all destroyed, leaving only his primal need to escape death. It's a sight so spectacular, it forces you to live in the present. And then he's gone, in an instant, just as Sam's empathy for the dead man passed in a flash of thought. And time swallows the oliphant up. Sam never heard what happened to the great beast, whether he roamed the wild for a while or plunged into the river and drowned. Fear and wonder may have enlarged him in Sam's eyes, Tolkien writes, and we'll never know because they're no longer around to check. The elephants are gone, just like the mammoths in real life. Oh, sure, we have elephants, but the author tells us that these are but memories of the animal Sam saw. We're living in what he calls the latter days. Time has taken everything away. We just hang on for dear life, like the man clinging to the remains of the war tower on the Oliphant's back. Sooner or later, we have to let go. As Sam says, no one at home will believe him. We're all just stories in the end, if we're lucky. Once the miracle has passed, the hobbits are left alone again with mortal men, like the readers of the story. The chapter ends with a subtle threat from one of the guards. Faramir isn't just going to leave you alone. Even when the enemy is gone, passing away like that Oliphant, We might still be enemies, unless we learn to empathize with each other as Sam did with that dead man. Are the hobbits guests or prisoners? We'll get into that next time. So every week on my Lord of the Rings episodes, I've been talking at the end a little bit about how the movie adaptations made by Peter Jackson and company that came out about 20 years ago have handled each stretch of the material. As I said a couple episodes back, the movie shifts Gollum's debate within himself from the Dead Marshes to Ithilien, and has Smeagol temporarily triumph, believing that he's banished the Gollum side for good. This happens in context with Frodo and Sam arguing about how to treat Gollum. Frodo calls Sam out on how poorly he treats their guide, running him down, calling him names like Stinker. Sam protests. That's what he is. There's naught left in him but lies and deceit. As in the books, we're made to understand Sam's perspective while also seeing its limits. He's like Frodo early on in the story, only able to judge Gollum without being able to understand him. Yet, Frodo's empathy for Gollum is derived from the ring. He understands what the ring has done to him, still doing to him as he puts it, and he has to believe that Gollum can come back from that, because, it's implied, that means Frodo could come back. When Sam doubts that, Frodo snaps at him. When Frodo apologizes, Sam says the ring is taking hold, Frodo has to fight, and then Frodo snaps at him again. Both actors are doing terrific work. Sean Astin always does a great job showing Sam thinking things through, all his feelings right there on his face. And Elijah Wood nails Frodo teetering on the edge here, whipsawing between ragged sorrow and aggressive paranoia that, as Sam implies, makes him sound a lot like Gollum. Empathy cuts both ways, and we're seeing a triangle form, with Frodo caught between Sam, the person he was, and Gollum, the person he's becoming. When the Smeagol side wins the debate, it seems like a point in Frodo's favor, as the characters acknowledge with glances. Frodo hopeful, Sam skeptical. No further dialogue required to get the point across. Besides, Andy Serkis is really the star of this scene, showing up with the rabbits without being asked, unlike the books. He's more like a pet than ever, a cat spitting a dead bird at your feet and then eagerly awaiting praise. But then Gollum, being Gollum, takes things too far and starts ripping into raw rabbit, causing Frodo's face to fall. Sam intervenes to cook the rabbits, and as in the book, it's hilarious just how disappointed Gollum is by this. He likes his meat raw and wriggling, circus leaning into the lip-smacking grossness of it all. They're from two different worlds, despite common origins. And I hadn't remembered how many of Gollum's memeable lines come directly from the books. Tolkien really had a handle on his dialogue. You keep nasty chips. The introduction of Faramir is done more succinctly than in the books, to keep this relative downtime moving quickly. And a lot of the nuance is lost in the process. The rangers' bird calls are purely about getting in position to fight the Southrons, so we don't get the connective tissue and thematic depth of Sam's cookfire giving them away. The sight of the Oliphant doesn't mean as much without Sam's little rhyme beforehand at the Black Gate. But that might have come off as corny on screen, and there are still great details here. The subtle tears in Sean Astin's eyes when he sees the Oliphant, Gollum realizing that the bird calls are fake and just piecing the fuck out in the background, the sudden shots of rangers appearing from nowhere, hoods hiding their faces as they cut the Southrons down. I'll talk more about David Fenham as Faramir next time, but an interesting change in adaptation, as seen in the extended edition of The Two Towers, is that he gets a monologue in which he says what Sam thinks about the dead Southron in the books. Maybe he wasn't evil, but a man like any other, led on the road by lies and threats, and maybe in the end he would have rather stayed home, at peace. That's an idea very true to Sam as a character, but I think it works well as a way to introduce Faramir to the movie audience. He specifically says it in response to Frodo claiming that they should be friends, as they have enemies in common. What, like this guy? Faramir asks. Was he really my enemy? The way it's edited, cutting between Faramir's sorrowful expression and the dead man's face, they seem more like mirror images. It could just as easily be Faramir lying there, dead far from the home he loves. It follows up on what Frodo was saying about Gollum. I can't detach myself, think of him purely as a stinker, because he could easily be me. The lines between friend and enemy blur so easily that Faramir can't automatically trust Frodo any more than he actually hated the man he felt driven to kill. War makes corpses of us all, Faramir says, no doubt thinking of his brother Boromir, whose corpse he recently discovered. Boromir died on the inside before he died on the outside. He became the enemy. And Faramir's line reminds me of Thoros' line in A Feast for Crows. War makes monsters of us all. So that's going to wrap us up for this week on The Lord of the Rings. Next time, Faramir takes Frodo and Sam back to his little hideout and we'll work through the struggle in their relationship and how to handle Gollum before the remains of the Fellowship moves on. Thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, rate and review us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf. You can also find me on Twitter at poorquentin. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and many more benefits. So thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time for Book 4, Chapter 5 of the Lord of the Rings.